Welcome to CME on ReachMD. The following activity is provided by Access Medical Education and supported by an educational grant from Celgene Corporation, Merck and Company, and Lilly. Prior to beginning this activity, please be sure to review the faculty information and disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives, by visiting reachmd.com slash Hello and welcome to this educational activity, Advanced Metastatic Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Treatment, Advancements for Patients Without Targetable Activating Mutations. I am Dr. Karen Reckamp, Professor of Medicine at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in Duarte, California. I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Sozinski, Executive Medical Director at the Advent Health Cancer Institute in Orlando, Florida, and Dr. Helena Yu, Assistant Attending Physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, New York. Here's a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label uses of approved agents or agents that are in development. Here's our financial disclosure information for you to review. Here are the learning objectives for this activity. Through case examples, we will evaluate the most recent clinical data and provide evidence-based updates and expert insights on first-line treatment of advanced non-small cell lung cancer without targetable activating mutations. We will also discuss how we discern the best treatment approach and use of chemotherapy and immunotherapy for these patients. So let's discuss our first case. We have a 50-year-old woman who is diagnosed with stage four squamous cell carcinoma of the lung with metastatic disease to the left adrenal gland and at least three hepatic metastases measuring greater than two centimeters. Other findings include a PDL1 tumor expression of 0%, a tumor mutational burden of two mutations per megabyte. Dr. Sosinski, how would you treat this patient? So in this relatively young patient for lung cancer, uh, 60 years of age, we're going to assume her performance status is excellent. We have confidence in her histologic diagnosis being squamous cell. I think uh, most of us would choose a platinum doublet, and I think in squamous, my first choice is a platinum plus a taxane. We can debate what the best taxane may be in that setting. And then based on the results of the recent Keynote 407 trial, which grafted pembrolizumab onto uh, that backbone where, where we saw a very positive survival advantage in, in this population, that would be my recommendation. You know, it's interesting that what we've done in the past couple of years is take all of our platinum-based doublets that we all used as standard therapy in the first-line setting. Historically, we would use them and we would sequence to second-line immunotherapy. All of the original immunotherapy agents were approved after uh, platinum uh, failure. And what we've done is take second-line therapy grafted on the first-line therapy, and all of these trials have been positive, uh, and some of them wildly positive, and so that's kind of changed the standard of care, kind of grafting these things together. So in a patient like this, that would be my go-to recommendation, assuming there are no obvious contraindications to immunotherapy. And can you talk a little bit about the rationale for combining chemotherapy and immunotherapy? Well, you know, much of it probably in my mind remains a mystery. I think that one of the lessons that I think we learned from actually Keynote 024 is that there might be something magic about giving immunotherapy up front. If you look at Keynote 024, which gave patients greater than 50% pdl one expression, uh, pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy, 
You know, I probably would have bet that if those patients on chemotherapy transitioned to pembrolizumab in second line, that their survival would have come to if they got pembro, but, but it didn't. So is there something magical about getting on in the course of the disease? Is the immune system more? Uh, is when you're using it with chemotherapy, is there an advantage if you see cytotoxic cell death and other immunologic mechanisms that may enhance the effect of immunotherapy in that setting? I think those were all theoretical sorts of reasons, but... You know, I think the clinical data is incontrovertible. I mean, all of these trials, particularly uh, Keynote 407, uh, it was a striking benefit in the, in the combination arms. Can you tell us a little bit about the Keynote 407 trial? Yes, uh, Keynote 407 uh, was a randomized phase three trial. Patients had to be untreated stage four disease with squamous histology, good performance status. Uh, had to have a sample for PDL1 assessment. No symptomatic brain meds were allowed, and then the usual contraindications for immunotherapy, specifically no pneumonitis that required systemic um, uh, steroids. The randomization, the control arm was a standard carboplatinum physician's choice of either solvent-based paclitaxel or NAB paclitaxel. Uh, and uh, it was a 60-40 split, 60 with solvent-based and 40% with NAB paclitaxel. They got four cycles. The investigational arm simply grafted pembrolizumab onto that at standard doses and schedule. There was a maintenance phase for those that didn't progress, uh, either placebo or pembrolizumab. Patients on the control arm were allowed to cross over at the time of disease progression. Uh, Primary endpoints were both PFS as well as overall survival. And stratification factors were PD-L1 expression status, uh, choice of the taxane, as well as uh, geographic region. So as you see on the Kaplan-Meier curve, these curves separate by about three months or so, and the uh, hazard ratio for overall survival is 0.64. Obviously, I think both statistically significant as well as clinically significant when you look at the curves. The median survival for the control arm was 11.3 months, which is typically what we see with platinum-based doublets, and then nearly 16 months, 15.9 months for the investigational arm of this trial. So a pretty impressively positive trial. Toxicity uh, is shown on the slide here. I, um, uh, you know, it's been interesting. I made the comment before that uh, we've grafted former second-line standard therapies with the three immunotherapies onto our chemotherapy backbones. And the lesson that I learned, I think we can take-home message, is that, you know, if you give immunotherapy with our standard chemotherapy regimens, it really doesn't change the toxicity of the chemotherapy. And chemotherapy doesn't seem to change the toxicity of the immunotherapy. So I think you have to be prepared to deal with more toxicity because you're just giving a greater number of drugs. Uh, But there's nothing really unusual from the chemotherapy point of view or nothing really uh, unusual from the immunotherapy point of view. You just have to manage them together. So, Thank you, Dr. Sosinski. And uh, Dr. Yu, do you agree or have anything else to add to this scenario? Oh, I think Mark really comprehensively went over Keynote 407, so I don't have a whole lot to add. I guess I would just say that in some ways I I do find squamous cell lung cancer a little bit more challenging to treat. I think there are a a few less options, and I think we'll go over some of the options for our adenocarcinoma uh, sort of counterpoint. And also I think just to note that the survival, both the progression-free survival as well as the overall survival, 
are numerically lower than, than with adenocarcinoma. So I think, and less of an ability to sort of pick out or have predictive markers to figure out who, who really responds. I think that's a challenge. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I think what we know about the squamous population, they tend to be a little older. They right. tend to be much more male-dominated. It's a more smoking-related disease than the non-squamous population. They tend to have more comorbidity. So I think your observations about the overall survival experience for this group of patients uh, isn't as good as we see in the non-squamous population. It could be because of all of those factors. And I think in adenocarcinoma, there are some emerging sort of genomic biomarkers yes. that can help us sort of figure out what the best treatment is, but I think we sort of have yet to find that in, in squamous still cell. waiting. Yeah, yeah. still yeah. waiting. And is there anything that makes you choose the solvent-based paclitaxel versus nabpaclitaxel in your patients? I, I, you know, tend to agree with Mark where I, I do end up um, choosing the nabpaclitaxel more, more frequently, although not always. I think in terms of patient tolerability and, and some of the sort of toxicities, including neuropathy, it just, you know, in my experience, it's a little bit easier to tolerate for patients. Now, we had at World Lung last year in Toronto a retrospective, I believe it was an unplanned analysis, although it was a stratification factor, mm -hmm. where they looked at the survival based on what taxane you received, uh, solvent-based versus nabpaclitaxel. Uh, I don't recall the numbers off the top of my head, but there was a trend, uh, if you believe that you can do the retrospective unplanned sort of thing. There was a, a little bit of a trend in favor of nabpaclitaxel uh, for overall survival compared to solvent-based paclitaxel. And I think, to your point, I think most the people that I talk to feel that there's a toxicity advantage, although there's also uh, an inconvenience disadvantage because it's a weekly sort of thing. So I, I think you can kind of probably play it both ways, but uh, I, I, I do find uh, myself using uh, the NAB approach more often than not. And I, I agree. I mean, this data from the Keynote 407 is pretty straightforward to help you decide to use uh, chemotherapy and immunotherapy for your squamous cell, non-small cell lung cancer patients. So we want better therapies. We still have a ways to go with squamous cell and definitely for targeted therapy. But for this case, I think well, we all agree. Now we'll discuss case two. This is a 66-year-old man with a newly diagnosed stage four adenocarcinoma of the lung. Additional findings show PDL1 uh, is 50%. The patient has no evidence of a targetable, actionable mutation. Dr. Yu, which treatment would you select for this patient and why? Good question. So I think for this patient, there are a few more options that we can explore. So I think there are a few other studies that we could go over. Personally, and I think most of us would likely agree, that, you know, I would choose single-agent pembrolizumab for this patient, and that's really based primarily on this Keynote 024 study. So as you can see on the slide, the study schema, Keynote 024 took patients that had stage 4 non-small cell lung cancer, both squamous and non-squamous histology, specifically EGFR and ALK wild type since they had more appropriate treatments, and then took patients that were pdl one expressing greater than 50%, and then randomized them to platinum doublet chemotherapy appropriate to their histology versus pembrolizumab. And you can see really that both the progression-free survival as well as the overall survival significantly favored the pembrolizumab monotherapy for these patients. The toxicity, as, as Mark mentioned earlier, you know, I think there are clear toxicities that are attributed to both immunotherapy and chemo, so we really saw um, no surprises here in terms of toxicity. So I think that study really most closely mirrors this patient. I think there's been, since that study came out, I think um, more data suggesting couldn't we use 
single-agent pembrolizumab for more patients, and, and that really is based on the Keynote 042 study. So exactly same sort of treatment arms, but this time really looked at patients that had pdl one expression greater or equal to 1% and gave them either pembrolizumab or platinum doublet chemotherapy. And again, you know, did show in the pre-specified greater or equal to 1% uh, PD-L1 expression did show an improvement with the pembrolizumab compared to chemotherapy, but many really think that that was primarily driven by PD-L1 expressors greater than 50% because I think the data was less convincing when they showed us the subset of the 1 to 49%. And again, here you see the toxicity very similar in, to, to Keynote 024. And then I think two other studies to really think about are the chemotherapy-immunotherapy combination studies. So all of us are familiar with Keynote 189, which is the study that specifically took patients, the difference here being non-squamous adenocarcinoma uh, lung cancer patients, and then really randomized them to receiving platinum, uh, either carboplatin or uh, cisplatin, uh, with pemetrexid with or without pembrolizumab. And the primary endpoint of this study was both overall survival as well as progression-free survival. So as you can see from the study schema, patients received both troll arm, uh, received pemetrexid maintenance, and the patients in the study arm received pembrolizumab and pemetrexid maintenance until progression or intolerance. And then, and as you can see here from the Kaplan-Meier curves, there really was a commanding sort of uh, benefit to the addition of pembrolizumab to the platinum doublet chemotherapy uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.49, so quite significant. And uh, again, both statistically and of course clinically for our patients. Mirroring some of the other immunotherapy combination studies, uh, we really did see sort of expected side effects, uh, including of course more immune-related toxicities with the addition of pembrolizumab. And then finally, I think the other counterpoint not to omit, especially since uh, my colleague here um, presented and published this data, uh, is the Empower 150 data. And so that, you know, really mirroring 189, it was a very large study with multiple arms, but I think for our patient, and, and this case really focusing on the arms that included the carboplatin paclitaxel bevacizumab versus that same uh, trio of uh, chemotherapy and bevacizumab with the addition of atezolizumab, so cohorts B and C of, of that study. And you can see here really, again, uh, a, a clear improvement in uh, progression-free survival as well as overall survival with the addition of atezolizumab to, of course, that trio of bevacizumab plus the platinum doublet chemotherapy. And there was a clear benefit in all of the different subgroups uh, that were looked at. Not relevant to this case, but I think unique to Empower 150 is they did include patients that were uh, EGFR and ALK positive and did show uh, both a survival and a PFS benefit in that subgroup, which I think is unique and we might talk about further. And then giving four drugs together compared to three drugs, we, we, we did see sort of increased toxicity with this combination, which I think is one, one of the reasons why for this patient we, you know, we wouldn't choose this regimen, um, but really all expected toxicities. And so I think, you know, in conclusion for me, and I'm I want, interested to hear what my colleagues say as well, is we want the best, most effective treatments for our patients, but we also want to consider toxicity. And I would need a real reason to escalate treatment or add additional treatments to, to what I already know is effective. And so I think Keynote 024 really clearly showed us that uh, pembrolizumab monotherapy would be a, a good choice for this patient. And I don't have great confidence that adding the chemotherapy in this particular situation uh, would be additive to the degree that uh, would be worth added to toxicity.
Dr. Sosinski? I, I agree with all the comments that were made. I, I guess a couple of points that I would make. Um, I, I think Keynote 024 actually changed the landscape okay. and did allow patients that were high expressors of pdl one to have a very effective treatment that's actually a very non-toxic too. However, there are those patients, um, you know, I have several people with 90% pdl one expression that have a high volume of disease that are quite symptomatic. And I know that if you combine chemotherapy with pembrolizumab in that setting, you at least improve the response rates. I, I think one of the questions we have out there in practice is does adding chemo in that population actually uh, improve outcomes like PFS as well as overall survival relative to pembrolone? We don't have the answer to that question yet. However, in highly symptomatic patients, with very bulky disease, I will give them chemoimmunotherapy rather than immunotherapy alone. Uh, in terms of Keynote 042, one of the things I would advise the audience to do is to look at the Kaplan-Meier curves. There's always an early disadvantage in overall survival that you don't see on the chemotherapy curves. Um, so I do not, in my practice, uh, advocate using immunomonotherapy in patients less than 50%. Uh, and certainly not the negative populations. Uh, Keynote 189, you know, again, very impressively positive trial. Uh, I think one of the issues in, in practice is who are the patients that are going to benefit from the Empower 150 regimen. Before we leave Keynote 189, I do want to uh, note that we have a similar trial, Empower 132, that was carbopemetrexid plus or minus atezolizumab, which was a negative trial. So you could argue that we have one positive and one negative trial, and we can debate as to why that may be, but I would keep that in, uh, in, in your considerations, if you will. Um, Empower 150, to your point, four drugs uh, can be demanding on the patient as well as the resources that you may have. I, I do think it plays a role. I, I think this interplay and the reason we did the trial was that VEGF does have an immunosuppressive mm -hmm. aspect to it at multiple levels of the cancer immunity cycle. So I, I think targeting VEGF is a, a valid strategy in general and seems to improve outcomes if you uh, use it in combination with the anti-PD-1 or PDL one uh, sort, sorts of drugs. So, you know, it's not going to get the majority of play in that setting, but I do think in selected patients uh, where you might want to be more aggressive in that they're optimal candidates for a drug like bevacizumab, then I would consider the 150 regimen. And you pointed out in the EGFR ALK right. space, there, there, there may be a niche for it. The liver space, the, the liver metastasis story, I think, is in evolution. I think both immunotherapy as well as anti-VEGF therapy, and perhaps maybe the combination is best for patients with liver mets, but, but you know, that's still debatable. Mm -hmm. So I would agree you guys have both uh, given us a lot to think about with all the trials that are out there for, especially for our patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. I would like to just also note as we're talking about our patients with EGFR and ALK, as we can move toward treating patients without potentially testing pdl one it's incredibly important to still make sure we have our molecular testing yes. and that patients are truly wild type before they go on to receive chemoimmunotherapy or immunotherapy alone. Um, and the toxicity with first-line EGFR-TKIs may be significantly higher if you use immunotherapy first. And so making sure that that testing is done, even if there's a slight delay in starting therapy, because we have so many options for our patients, they still might not be the right options. And I would advocate 
being more comprehensive in your testing, going beyond even what the NCCN may call out at this particular point. Things like RET fusions or MedExon 14 are very important to identify. This is generally not a population that we think gets a big bang out of immunotherapy. Mm -hmm. There's nothing distinguishing about chemo in, in, in that crowd, but uh, obviously in order to use the growing number of targeted therapies we have, you got to make the molecular diagnosis. Absolutely, and I think the real point to make is even though these studies have really advanced how we treat people without mutations, you know, the response rates, the PFS, the survival we see with our targeted therapies far surpasses oh, yeah. that. And I think to Karen's point, too, I think that, you know, not only are we, you know, withholding or, or you know, leaving till later some really valuable treatment, that sequence of starting with immunotherapy and sequencing quickly with one of the targeted therapies can potentially harm patients. So not only, a, you know, it's not omission, it's potential harm. So I think all, all the more really important. Right. So next I'd like to summarize where we are and where we're going in the future with first-line treatment for non-small cell lung cancer. As we've heard, for patients without actionable mutations, non-squamous, PDL one less than 50%, the combination of platinum, pemetrexid, pembrolizumab is still our first choice for those patients. First line, no actionable mutation, squamous cell, PDL one less than 50%. Um, again, the keynote 407 study, carboplatin, either paclitaxel or nat paclitaxel with pembrolizumab. And for those without an actual mutation who have PDL1 greater than 50%, pembrolizumab alone is a very reasonable choice. There may be some times where you might want to use chemotherapy with pembrolizumab, but generally pembrolizumab regardless of histology. Some interesting data that's out there that we're still learning how we might implement these therapies and things to watch out for. So I'll, I'll talk about the Empower uh, 150. We had just uh, talked about this first-line cytotoxic therapy for patients with EGFR and ALK after they've received their TKI, uh, importantly, that they've already received their therapy. But the Empower 150 study was the first study to allow those patients into the trial and show a benefit to that combination with bevacizumab, atezolizumab, and carboplatin paclitaxel. And really the only trial we have that included these patients. Then thinking about patients and other ways of testing for patients. So the, in the frontline setting, we're also looking at other markers where we can test patients and understand benefit of immunotherapy for patients. In the Checkmate 227 study, nivolumab and ipilimumab were investigated versus chemotherapy. This study looked at PDL1 as the primary marker, but also presented data using high-tissue TMB, tumor mutational burden, and showed that patients with high tumor mutational burden had potentially higher benefit with the combination immunotherapy, ipilimumab and nivolumab. Subsequently, there's been a press release showing that the study was positive in patients with PDL1 positivity, and we await that data to help us guide how we might treat our patients with combination immunotherapy. And then back to the data from the Keynote 042 study, the patients without actionable mutation and PDL1 1 to 49%. I think we all agree that most patients who benefited were still the greater than 50% patients. That 1 to 49 subset unplanned analysis does not show um, significant uh, benefit for these patients. And so I think it's still an area where we would generally give combination chemotherapy with pembrolizumab. Other emerging areas are looking at blood-based uh, markers, especially blood tumor mutational burden. 
And this comes from data that was presented this spring at AACR um, by Dr. Peters. The MYSTIC uh, trial looked again at combination immunotherapy with tremolimumab and um, dervalumab. And that combination, the, the study was a negative study overall when then they looked back at blood tumor mutational burden at the highest levels of greater than 16 or greater than 20 mutations per megabase, those patients seem to have a a benefit to combination immunotherapy. So again, these are things to watch out for and things that uh, we may start to look for to help us understand how to treat patients beyond uh, using PD-L1. Then the EMPOWER studies, again, uh, there was a European approval for the, the EMPOWER 130 study looking at first-line metastatic non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer with carboplatin nabpaclitaxel. And uh, the Empower 131 and 132 were not uh, positive studies with overall survival. And uh, again, as to uh, Dr. Sudinsky's comment earlier, not all of these studies are showing the same benefit. So last, I'd like to ask what you would do for a patient uh, who progresses after a PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitor um, with or without chemotherapy in the first-line setting. Again, as Dr. Sosinski mentioned in the beginning, for decades we've been using platinum-based doublets with or without bevacizumab. Now we have jumped forward and we're giving patients immunotherapy or combination immunotherapy with chemotherapy. So we'd like to think about how to treat patients who don't receive immunotherapy in the front line. Not many of those patients left, but maybe they began treatment prior to the approvals. How we treat patients who progress on chemoimmunotherapy and then whether there might be patients who will benefit less from immunotherapy that you might think um, they might not be the bright patients to treat with immunotherapy. And Dr. Sosinski, we'll start with you. For those patients who have received the regimens we've been talking about, chemoimmunotherapy regimens here, like I said before, we've uh, essentially taken our first-line regimens, second-line regimens, combined them. So what we used to do is third-line, which was typically docetaxel, with or without ramucirumab, depending upon if there were any contraindications uh, in the setting, has kind of moved up to historically where docetaxel started, which was second-line. Um, and so that's my kind of go-to regimen. I, I tend to in the majority of patients actually use ramucirumab because we know from the REVEL trial that we did see the triple benefit overall response PFS and OS, although, you know, not very modest improvements in, in, in uh, the survival outcomes. Uh, for those patients that might not have gotten immunotherapy, first line, maybe because they were treated a while ago or someone missed the boat, then I think, you know, immunotherapy is our standard second line therapy. We had all the three agents that were compared to docetaxel, all of which clearly beat docetaxel in the second line setting. So that's what I would uh, do in, 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 in that setting. So it really comes down to, I think we find ourselves using more docetaxel. I think this is an area to try to figure out what further immunologic strategies could be employed for those patients who have kind of run through the PD-1, PD-L1. I don't know that we know that much about resistance mechanisms or, or what direction to go in in this setting, although that would be very helpful right. uh, to design subsequent trials. Right now in standard practice, we're back to docetaxel, second line. Usually I give it with, with ramucirumab. Sometimes there's a contraindication. Dr. Yu? Yeah, I mean, just to, to echo what Mark is saying, I think it's such a black box as to what to do post this, you know, our, our new first-line standard of care. I think even the REVEL study that, you know, was published and done prior to the era of immunotherapy. Yeah. So, 
you know, do those results stand up, at, you know, post first line immunotherapy? We don't even know. And I think the key, you know, with targeted therapies, we know acquired resistance, figuring out the mechanism, and then addressing that has been the key to sort of progress. But I think we're, we're really not there yet with immunotherapy in terms of figuring out sort of why people become resistant. Can we re-harness re re that immune response? And we're trying a lot of different combination immunotherapies, a little bit blindly, you know, in my opinion. And then I think finally, uh, you know, just to mention that, you know, in terms of cer certain people really benefit from immunotherapy, but there are a subset that don't. And I think there is really intriguing data at, at ASCO this year about certain genomic subsets uh, that might not respond. So thinking about um, keep one mutants or SCK11, which really, you know, those, that population, it's 25% of lung adenocarcinomas who really did not seem to benefit. So I think there's emerging data to help us kind of pick uh, the best treatments for our patients. I want to ask my colleagues a question that I thought of when you said uh, we, you know, we, we, the REVEL trial was done before the era of immunotherapy. Uh, every once in a while I hear anecdotal things that maybe chemotherapy works better after you've been exposed to immunotherapy. Does that resonate with either one of you? I mean, I think there's some data on second progression-free survival, and yeah. that um, has some support to show that right. maybe there's a, a longer second progression-free survival indicating that maybe you are getting better benefit. Yeah. Again, as you mentioned from the, the first, the Keynote 024 study, these patients went on to receive other therapies, but getting immunotherapy first, first. was the important thing. So yeah. I actually, I, it's hypothetical, but I believe that we're changing the milieu of the tumor microenvironment mm -hmm. in a way, and the immune system in a way that potentially can help other therapies to work better. But that is, that's ba based more on anecdotes and small sure. subset analyses. Yeah than primary data at this time. So at this point, um, we've discussed a lot of topics, first-line therapy, squamous cell, first-line therapy, non-squamous cell, non-small cell lung cancer, and the large number of uh, amount of data that has really been presented over the last year, year and a half, that have changed how we treat non-small cell lung cancer. And we can see even in the next six to 12 months, we'll probably get more data that may make us think about how we're choosing and, uh, and treating our patients. I'd like to thank both Dr. Zosinski and Dr. Yu for discussing these cases with me today and for your participation in this activity. Thank you. This has been CME on ReachMD. This activity was provided by Access Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, Go to reachmd.com slash accessmeded. Thank you for joining us.